What is the most important thing in life? You had to come up with your short list of the most important features, the most important things in life, what makes a good life. Uh, if you're like most people, personal happiness is probably going to make the cut. It's, it's probably going to be on the short list. Uh, in a quote that is attributed to Audrey Hepburn, she once said, the most important thing in life, most important thing, is to enjoy your life, to be happy. And then, and then this phrase, it's all that matters. Uh, I don't know how many of you are taking life lessons from Audrey Hepburn, so you, know, you probably aren't going to be in lockstep with everything she has to say, but I, I bring this up as we start because I wonder... I wonder how many of us, maybe we wouldn't be so bold and brazen as, as to say, you know, happiness is all that matters. But when we live our lives, if, if you look just at the way we live, how, how much does personal happiness factor in to the way we live our lives on a day-in, day-out basis? Uh, what is the most important thing in life? How many in our culture would say per- personal happiness, the pursuit of happiness? Uh, Audrey Hepburn is not... Uh, maybe the most influential voice in the world, but she, I think, is just updating something that was reflected years earlier, thousands of years earlier, by a much more influential thinker by the name of Aristotle. And Aristotle is quoted as, as saying, happiness is the meaning and purpose of life. It is the whole aim and the end of human existence. So we start talking about somebody like Aristotle, his uh, philosophy, his teaching, you know, his words carry a lot more weight historically. And really, I think what, what we see with this Audrey Hepburn quote is just an updated, an updated version of what Aristotle has been saying for so, so long. Personal happiness. How high up the list does that rank for you? Even our Declaration of Independence says that the pursuit of happiness is one of those unalienable rights that is given to, <clears throat> to all humanity. So where, where would that rank for you on the list? Um, <clears throat> one of the most common ways that this is expressed in our culture today is through another short little phrase, and that phrase is, is follow your heart. Uh, the idea that the pursuit of happiness is the most important thing in the world comes to us oftentimes in, in that short phrase, follow your heart. And the idea there is that the best life is the one that is lived by indulging those impulses of the heart. The thought process goes something like this, that you and I have this inner GPS. And if we could just tune in to those coordinates, if we could just tune in to what our heart tells us that we should pursue, then, then we would ultimately end up with the, the happiest, most rewarding, most fulfilling life possible. The idea is that if you follow your heart, then all you've ever wanted is what you'll receive. Follow your heart. Uh, I want to begin there today because we, we started this series last week on counterfeit gods. And we're talking about the, the counterfeit gods in our culture. We're talking about uh, how idolatry is the fundamental problem in the scriptures. And how idolatry is also one of the fundamental problems in our culture today. You see that in the Old Testament and all the warnings that Israel received about avoiding those gods, those false gods, lowercase g, those false gods in, in their culture. And, and we, see, we see in the New Testament the same kind of language that's used. 
Paul says that we should be on guard against the idolatry that is present and that permeates our culture all the time. And so we begin here today because, because the counterfeit God of selfishness is really at the heart of all of these comments that you see on the screen. The problem with follow your heart, the problem with the the follow your heart mentality that is so pervasive in our culture today, the problem with all that is that it leads us to focus more on ourselves than anyone else. An inordinately high amount of time will be spent reflecting on me if I'm just interested in following my heart. Because I'll block out all other influences, I'll block out all other voices, any other uh, standard of truth I can avoid, I can block that out. If I'm just going like, to follow my heart and pursue happiness because that is, as Aristotle says, the whole aim and the end of human existence, when I end up doing that, you know what I've done is I've taken happiness and I've basically turned that into the counterfeit God of selfishness. Follow your heart basically becomes code for do whatever you want to do. Live a selfish life. Bow down before this God. And that is something that the Word of God warns us against at nearly every turn. So I want to, I want to think about this as we begin our time together this morning. What does, it, what does it mean for us to turn away from the counterfeit God of our culture that tells us we should follow our heart. Instead, what does God's Word tell us that we ought to do? Well, a couple of passages for you here as we get started this morning. The first is Psalm 119, verse 36. Psalm 119, verse 36. Uh, it tells us that, that the problem there with following our heart is that it will lead us to this counterfeit God of selfishness. Psalm 119 says, Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. What God's Word says to us here as we start this morning, the Word of God says that our hearts have this natural lean, that our hearts have this natural bend toward toward selfishness, that if our hearts are left unchecked, we will begin to drift, and that drift will lead us toward selfish desires. Uh, Without the, the mooring, without being anchored to something beyond ourselves, what we will naturally do is we will gravitate toward something that is a a desire that leads to the, the, the pleasure of self. It leads to uh, the selfishness of indulging those inner impulses. That's what, ha- what happens when we begin to follow our heart. Follow your heart again becomes code for it's okay for you to be selfish. And according to this passage, according to Psalm 119, our hearts have this natural bend toward selfishness, which makes listening to the desires of your heart pretty dangerous. Just listening to the desires of your heart, the culture has absolutely no filter for that. Hey, if it's in your heart, you need to listen to that. Be true to yourself and follow your heart and pursue your dreams, and you'll end up with all you ever wanted. That's what the culture tells us. But here we see that our hearts have this lean towards selfishness. So it was about three or four days ago, two or three days ago, uh, we were here, many of us, to remember the life of one of our sisters, Mary Sue Tipton. She's been on our sick list for quite some time, and, uh, and we had a great opportunity to remember her life and reflect together, uh, just like we, anytime we lose one of our, our loved ones. And, and I, was, I was sitting right over here, and Gary was, was standing here, and he was talking about Mary Sue, and he's talking about her life, and he said something really profound. He was talking about how Mary Sue was a servant. 
She was a servant of God, and he listed some of the ways that she served this church and served others. But then Gary said, you know, we're not wired naturally for service, right? We're not made and just wired to naturally go out and find ways that we can serve others. We're created in the beginning. We're wired to be selfish. That's like on the hard drive. When we show up on the earth as a baby, right? We are never more selfish than we are in that moment because all we can see is our needs, our desires, our wants. Like if you're holding a baby in your arms today, I doubt you're looking down at that child and think, you are so selfish. Like nobody's doing that, right? But it's true. It's true because when we show up as children, we, we can't see beyond our own needs, our own desires, But to become a servant, that's something we have to learn. That's an acquired taste. That's something we pick up along the way because our hearts have this natural bend towards selfishness. So that's the first problem with follow your heart. You follow your heart, again, unchecked, unanchored by anything else. You follow your heart, you're going to end up, you're going to end up bowing down before that counterfeit God of selfishness. So because of that, God's word tells us also that the human heart can't always be trusted. Listen to this passage from Jeremiah chapter 17. In the context here of Jeremiah 17, what God is doing, he's basically confronting the sin that is present in Judah. And God says this about the human heart, talking to his people. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is God talking. This is God talking to his people, and he's saying, you know, the problem here is that, is that your heart, you have, a, you have a heart problem. That word, therefore, deceitful. Uh, the Hebrew scholars say that that word also means uneven ground. It means rocky ground. He's, he's literally saying, if you give in to this impulse to follow your heart, you just need to know that's going to be a rocky road. <laughs> that's going to be an uneven road. Because your heart, because it has a bend towards selfishness, it can't really be trusted to lead you in the right way. It can't be trusted to lead you in a place where you need to go ultimately. You need outside help. I need outside help. I need a heart transplant in order for me to live the kind of life that God calls me to. And that's what makes that passage from Ezekiel that we looked at last week, Ezekiel 36 and the promise of a new heart, that's what makes that passage so important for us because we recognize left to our own devices and left to our own selfishness, there's no hope for us. But the promise of God is a new heart, a new spirit, all of those things we talked about last week. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller notes that one of the worst things that God can do, one of the worst things God can do is to give us over to the desires of our hearts. One of the worst things that God can do is to say, I'm going to let you follow your heart. I'm going to let you follow where that heart leads you to and give you over to those sinful, selfish desires because inevitably what happens in that moment is that we will take the desires of our hearts and make idols out of them. We will fashion idols out of those sinful desires in our hearts. And the Word of God says that that God reaches a certain point where he gives us over to those sinful desires. Look here uh, with me in Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Sounds a lot like idolatry to me. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. God will let you choose. He will let you choose the path that you take. He will let you choose who or what you will worship. God is resigned to this free will thing. Uh, From the very beginning, he said, I'm going to give humanity this this choice, the power of choice, and it resides with you. And it was that way in the garden with Adam and Eve, and it's that way for for you and and for me today. We have the power of choice. God says, look, you know what? You have the the power to choose which kind of life you want to live. You can choose the path that you take. You can choose who you're going to bow down and worship. That life is, is totally yours. But you need to know if you give in to this to the desires of your heart, the sinful desires of your, of your heart. If you follow those in ways that, that lead you astray from where God wants you to be, you just need to know, like, he's okay with that. He, he allows that. He, he will, will uh, let you make that choice. But ultimately, in the end, God has a choice to make as well. And what he's describing here is this, is this situation where, where people have had an opportunity, have an opportunity to choose the path that God wants for them. But because they're giving in to those sinful desires of their hearts, it says, therefore, God gives them over to those. Sounds as if a bit of a threshold is being crossed there in that passage. Uh, I, I would want to say that as long as we have breath in our, in our bones here, I, I believe the opportunity to repent is there. As long as, we, we, as long as our hearts are pumping, as long as we have life, we have an opportunity to turn back to the Lord, okay? Uh, so I don't want to negate that at all. But it seems as if there reaches a certain point from God's perspective, if I'm reading what he's saying here correctly, there reaches a certain point where he says, you know what, if that's, if that's the kind of life you want to live, then, then okay, I'm, I'm just going to turn you over to those, those sinful desires. I'm going to turn you over to the desires of your heart and, and let you have ultimately what it is that you want here in this life, in the flesh. I've heard it said before, you, know, you, you are basically entitled to one paradise. The question is, where will it be? Is it on this side of eternity or on the other side? And God, is, God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to let you make that choice. But in the end, the choice of where you spend eternity comes down to his choice as well. We don't talk about that a lot. We don't preach through a passage like Romans 1 very often. But this is God's word. It says, those sinful desires, I give you over to those because I trust you with this choice. That's the way God has chosen to create each and every one of us. We said last week, anything can become a counterfeit God. Anything in our lives, good, bad, or otherwise, can become a counterfeit God. It can become a source of idolatry in our lives, okay? And what Satan would want more than anything else is for for there to be anything other than God at the, the place of centrality in our hearts and in our lives. And so we, we mentioned it last week. There's there's one thing that we will make our lives all about. Every person 
no matter how religious or irreligious they may be, every person on the face of the earth finds something to order their lives around. Every person finds something to worship in essence. I'm going to build my life around something. Now, for some, that's God. For some, that's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, salvation that is found in him and in him alone. For others, it may be taking something that's, that's really, really good and, and placing that at a, just a little bit higher place than it ought to be. And we mentioned last week, family is one of those things. We'll look at a passage of Scripture here in just a minute that talks about that. But the idea here is that Satan would take something good in our lives and, and to, to pervert that and corrupt that just a bit by getting us to elevate it to a place where, where God alone should be in our hearts. You know, if, if, if we would give Satan that, he would take it. For others, maybe that one thing isn't something good. Maybe it's something illicit. Maybe it's a bad relationship. Maybe it's some kind of like deceptiveness going on in your life. Maybe your one thing is about living this double life. There's this illicit kind of behavior going on in your life, and Satan has you so focused on that over there, and he'll definitely take that as well. I don't know what it is for you, for me, for, but we all have one thing that we make our lives around. We, we center our lives on something, and that becomes... That becomes the object of worship in our lives. It orders and structures everything in our lives. It gives meaning and purpose to our lives. So what's the one thing for you? God says he reaches a point where if that one thing isn't him, he can take a hint. He can turn us over to that. And yes, I believe that his grace is so amazing and awesome that if we repent, we take that one step home toward like that prodigal son does there in Luke, then he comes rushing to make up the difference. But but he's not going to force himself on you. So what's your your one thing? What is your one thing? And that leads us to the final passage we'll talk about here today. And it's, it's one of the more troubling places in scripture, to be honest with you. Because it, it confronts our modern sensibilities, it's, it's offensive to modern ears as we read it, but it's the Word of God as well. It's in Genesis 22, and it's the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. Uh, in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, and he calls him. He calls him to, to leave behind uh, his family, and to leave behind his friends, to leave the land that he has has lived in, and to set out for a new land, to set out uh, sight unseen, to go to, to this place that God will lead him to. And Abraham is faithful. Uh, God basically calls Abraham to leave behind many of the things that, that are a part of our des- the desires of our hearts. Many of the desires of our hearts, God calls Abraham to leave those behind, and he does so. He is obedient, and he is faithful. And at this point in his life, Abraham is 75 years old. Uh, his life is pretty good. He's married. He has great wealth. He has great prosperity. He seems to have a good name in his community, in, in, in this land. Uh, the one thing he doesn't have, the one thing that eludes him is a son. In the ancient world, the idea of eternal life was linked to having a son, having someone to carry on the family name. The idea there was that you would live forever as long as you had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and they could carry your line forward. They could inherit all of your possessions, but more importantly, they could live out your name. And that was part of the idea of eternal life here. And so with the son to continue on his line, Abraham would have this, this blessing of, of life eternal in some respects. This has to be, when we find Abraham in Genesis 12, this has to be the deepest desire of Abraham's heart. And yet, he and his wife Sarah are barren. No children. 
But God comes to him and he makes him this promise. He says, not only will I give you children, I will give you, you'll be the father of many nations. They will inherit this land. And the promises there are just, are just so rich. And after 25 years, 25 long years of waiting, Isaac is born. The child of promise is born. And Abraham and Sarah, they, they finally have all they've ever wanted. The deepest desire of Abraham's heart has finally come full circle, and he's holding his son Isaac. And you can imagine how he thinks this is the final chapter. It's all come full circle. I stepped out in faith, and God rewarded me. And you know, now it's just time. Let us all stand and sing. I mean, that's like it's, it's a beautiful picture of how Abraham's life is supposed to end. And then one day God comes calling again. And he asks Abraham to give it up. He asks Abraham to offer up the one thing that he'd always wanted, and that was his son, Isaac. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Uh, I, you know, for me, I, there's just no sh- way to sugarcoat a passage like this. It's, it, it, I mean, it's difficult. And, uh, you know, you have, you have children, you have grandchildren. Uh, a passage like this, again, can, there's some sensibilities that are, are being kind of violated as we, as we read through this. I, I understand that. Um, in Hebrew, this is referred to as the Akedah means the binding. So it's, it's referred to as the binding of, of Isaac. And, uh, and we have to be really careful as we read through a, a text like this. Um, we have to be really careful that, that we don't get too carried away because uh, very clearly what, what, what you see in, the, in the, the full testimony of God's Word is that, uh, is that God forbids child sacrifice. That is something that he is not interested in for his people at all. If you're interested in chasing down some of these references, you can read this, but it's Leviticus 18, verse 21, uh, Jeremiah 7, 30 through 34, Ezekiel 20, uh, verse 31. There's just a couple of places where God says to his people later, that is not who we are. That is not what we do. In fact, some scholars believe that the very reason he has Abraham go through with all of this is to provide a point of contrast. So the people of Israel, when they look around and they see their pagan neighbors offering up their babies on the altars to pagan gods, they would know, oh yeah, there's a God in Israel who says, we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to live that kind of way. He's not asking that of us. So there's that. And that's worth pointing out. And that's worth saying as we read a passage like this. There's also this, a, a careful reading of God's word will, will point us to some, the, the significance of the location, Mount Moriah. So you hear that passage here. It's the name of the mountain uh, that, that all this is, is going down on in Genesis 22. Uh, the only other place this is mentioned in the Bible is in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, and verse 1. It tells us that Solomon builds the temple of the Lord on Mount Moriah. So the only two times that that place is mentioned in the Bible is uh, Genesis 22, sacrifice of Isaac, uh, 2 Chronicles 3, uh, sacrifice of lambs and, and, and rams and goats at the temple. And so one scholar says the sacrifice, the, the ram who appears and, and, and is, is sacrificed in place of Isaac in Genesis 22, 
is basically a forerunner, a foreshadowing of what is to come later when on the same mountain, God's people will make sacrifices that are substitutionary and bring about atonement in the sense of the sins of the people being rolled forward and all that. And I think there's some truth to that as well. So that location kind of helps us get this a little bit too. Um, but it's still a hard word to hear, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's, it's still just really, really challenging. And, and, and we read a passage like this and and we think, man, what, what is God up to here? Why, why would God do this? Why would God do this to Abraham? I mean, hasn't he, done, hasn't he shown? Hasn't he, proved, hasn't he passed the test? He left it all behind once, followed you sight unseen to go to a land that he hadn't been to. How does he explain that to his wife? How does he explain that to his parents? I'm hearing voices, and the voices tell me to go. He did it. He, he, he followed through. So why would God do this to Abraham? Never mind Abraham. Why would God do this to Isaac? What has he done? He's kind of a passive uh, member of this, of this story. And, and why would God require this? Why would God even ask of this? Again, it's It's troubling. And there are a lot of questions that we have about a text like this, and we can't answer them. Not in 20 minutes, not in 200 hours. But as as troubling as this might be, the the only way we can understand it, the only way I can make sense of it, is in light of the conversation we're having together here. It's it's a test of Abraham's one thing. Remember, we, we all have one thing. We have one thing that, we, that controls our lives, that we center our lives around it, and this is Abraham's test. It's, it's a test of his one thing. And, and in essence, what God is saying to Abraham here is he's saying, you know, look, I know you love Isaac. It says there, take Isaac, your son, you know, only son whom you love. Do you love me? Again, that's hard, but I, I, it's the test of the, of the one thing. I know you love the gift God might be saying to Abraham here. I know, you, I know you love the gift. Have you forgotten the giver? I think it's the only way a passage like this makes, makes sense. And, and, and we want to like rush to the end of the story because we know how it all ends. And, you know, there's that moment where Abraham puts the knife up and then the voice of God stops him. And, you know, we want to get to that part really, really quickly. But, but if you just let, you, let it sit there for a moment with the knife still in the air, I, I think it's just the test of the one thing. And, and I think that word asks me to reflect in my own life, what, what's the one thing? As a father of three, I don't like preaching Genesis 22 any more than you like hearing it. But the only way I can make sense of it is to ask the question, what's my one thing? Again, Timothy Keller says, if God had not intervened, Abraham would have certainly come to love his son more than anything in the world if he did not already do so. And that would have been idolatry. And all idolatry is destructive. As long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and his obedience to God, he could not see that his love was becoming idolatrous. As we noted last week, anything can become an idol. Anything can become a a counterfeit God in our lives, even those good things. And, And again, Satan's ability to corrupt and to pervert is so tremendous, and the forces of darkness would love nothing more than to, to take God's good gifts and to have them, have them be turned against us. But the questions remain. So what is the one thing that is central to your happiness? What are the deepest desires 
of your heart? What is the Isaac in your life? This passage teaches us an important question, or excuse me, an important lesson concerning the, the things that we, we can't live without. We can't allow any object, any goal, any relationship to supersede God. If anything other than God has become central to our lives, uh, purpose, meaning, happiness, all of that, then that one thing has become a counterfeit God in my life. So a hard word like this from Genesis 22, it, it forces me to ask, do I love God for who he is, or do I simply love God for what he does for me? Do I love God, or do I merely love the benefit of having God in my life? Do I love God for God's sake, or do I love him merely for the service he provides me? Hard questions that come out of Genesis 22. We'll close with this. I want you to, to picture two doors, maybe kind of like these on the screen. And behind the, the first door, again, is, uh, is everything you've ever wanted. It's, it's your heart's desires. And some of those may not be worth mentioning in, in a crowd like this. Some of those might be noble desires. They might be good things. It might be, you know, some mixture. Whatever your heart's desires might be, they're all right there behind door number one. So it's, it's the admiration of your peers. Maybe that's, like, so important to you. Maybe it's, it's the success of your children. Maybe you're so enmeshed in them and their lives, like what's most important to you is that they succeed and do well. Um, maybe it's more money than you could ever possibly spend. Maybe it's your dream house. Maybe it's that uh, big promotion. Maybe it's sexual fulfillment. Uh, maybe it's thriving relationships. Um, for you, maybe, maybe it's a full head of hair. I don't know what it would be for you. Like all of those things that are like your heart's desires, however silly or not quite so silly those might be, they're all right there behind uh, door number one. And then behind, behind door number two is just God. I mean, just God. No, no other promises. He, he's, he's not standing there saying like, hey, Hey, pick me, and and I'll also give you all those things that you really, really want. Um, He might have some other things he wants for you. It might be his will that you you would choose him, and he would change some of the desires of your heart. Away from selfishness. Away from sinfulness. And shift those back onto, like, his priorities. But he's not a genie in a bottle. He's not going to beg. He's not going to say, hey, if you do this, hey, come over here, and I will give you a full head of hair. I will give you a a, a home full of laughter. I will give you that big job and that dream house. God may have none of that in store for you. He may have none of that in store for me. Door two, it's just God. What, What do we choose? Which door would it be? That's the lesson of Genesis 22. Is it God for God's sake? Is it just God, or is it anything else? This is hard to preach, but if it's anything else, we have a problem. If it's anything else, we have a problem. And so in a world that, that, that just preaches this message 
Follow your heart. Follow the desires of your heart. Happiness. We're over here hearing the one who says, follow my son. Holiness. Walk in obedience to my will. That's the life we want to live. So in a world of counterfeit gods, today the message is this, that we serve the great and awesome living God, the one who stands ready to give us a new heart, to give us a new spirit, to transform the desires of our heart, to forgive us from those sinful desires and the times we give in to those. I don't know what temptations are present in your life, but I know this, God is powerful to cleanse us, as we said last week, of those idols and their temptations. We're going to stand and sing a song here in just a minute. You'll see some of your shepherds in this church moving throughout the room. Some of them will be up front here, some in the back, and some in the balcony. If you've been here for a while, you know how this goes. If you need to talk with one of them privately, they just make themselves available. You'd be surprised how many people want to go and just talk with them quietly. Maybe, maybe what's going on in your life, it's, it's not fit for public consumption. You don't want to come and share it in front of hundreds of people. That's why your shepherds are there. And if, and if they can listen to you, put an arm around you, pray with you, uh, they stand ready to do that. Certainly, there may be some things that you want to share with us publicly, and we, we, we definitely honor that. We, we promise to pray for you, to lift you up, that this is a safe place for you to share if there's something that you need to, to, to share with us and ask us to, to journey alongside you with. But know this today, too. If today, for the first time ever, you want to, to move away from that counterfeit God of selfishness, and instead be, be refashioned in the image of the selfless one who gave his life up for you, I want you to know he stands ready to receive you. He stands ready to walk into the water with you, to wash those sins away, and to walk alongside of you with a promise to never leave you and never forsake you as you begin that life of discipleship here in the present. If you need to respond to his call, I hope you'll do that. Let's stand and sing our song together. Learn.